Today we begin what I believe will be another one of those transformational journeys in God's Word together as we study the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon ever preached by the greatest teacher of all time, Jesus Christ. I want to just explain why we're studying this sermon right now. This has been a year where we have focused on asking God to give us a fresh vision. We had a wonderful picture of the type of church we wanted to become four and a half years ago when we planted the journey, and we are at a place now where as an established community, we're looking for a vision that will propel us forward. And uh, the vision has been around the idea of the kingdom of God. We began the fall with a series called Kingdom Come, and we looked at Christ's declaration of his mission from Luke chapter 4. And we realized that the gospel that has been handed down to us is the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we looked at what it meant to be citizens of that kingdom, but yet at the same time there is still the kingdom of this world Christ was crucified, and he was raised, and he ascended, and he said before he left, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's about the best definition of the kingdom of God that you'll ever hear because it's about authority, not geographic property. And he said, based on that, go now and make disciples. Our job right now is to extend that reign to the world when we came into the new year, we began a, a study about the Lord's Prayer. Kingdom prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And of course, it ends. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. So even in the Lord's Prayer, there's both yours is the kingdom now, but also let it come. Let it continue to come on earth. This series is the next step because this series is about the culture of the kingdom of God. The culture that is created when God's beneficent, gracious, transforming reign is established in hearts and in lives and even throughout history in whole communities and nations. The, the culture that emerges when God's kingdom comes. And therefore, it ought to be true of the church today because God's kingdom is here. You might say, how are we going to take words that were taught 2,000 plus years ago in an Eastern-minded culture, in an archaic concept of righteousness that was riddled by superstitious law layered on top of Old Testament law, that haven't we outgrown? How relevant can the Sermon on the Mount be? Well, we're going to find out today that it is relevant for all times and all places because it represents the one true countercultural movement that can actually create the type of society that in our hearts all of us long for. And so with that in mind, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Now the sermon itself goes through Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Today, our main focus is going to be the first two verses. Let's say it together. When Jesus saw the crowds, 
He went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Every phrase here is designed to paint a very important picture that sets the stage for the teaching we're about to spend the next several months studying. So in order to capture the meaning of these two verses, we're going to back up and begin reading at verse 17 of chapter 4. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside, and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. This is the backdrop to this sermon. It's important that you understand that what we're about to read is the first teaching ever recorded in the Bible from Jesus. Because it has so many famous sections, you can look at it as an encyclopedia of wisdom, but it is far more than that. Matthew writes his gospel with the Jewish people in mind, and we need to see this teaching as the transition point from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. A new standard, a new way of living is being presented by Jesus Christ that grows out of the Old Covenant, but definitely establishes itself as a new order, a new society the kingdom society. What has happened up until this point is that Jesus had just begun his ministry. We're very early in his ministry. Matthew records the baptism of Jesus, then the temptation of Jesus, and then uh, it says, after that time, he went about preaching. Let me just take you through these statements one by one in this verse. It begins, now when Jesus saw the crowds. You see, he'd been preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Keep your thumb there in Matthew and go back to Luke 4. The gospel writers consistently claim that as Jesus began his ministry, he was proclaiming the coming and nearness of the kingdom of God and for people to repent and believe. But none is stated more fully than uh, when he proclaimed the coming of the kingdom by his reading from the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue in his hometown. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, 
and the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Same season that Matthew talks about. And he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, to hear a a complete teaching on this, you go back to our Kingdom Come series on the podcast. You'll be able to track all that this invokes and the importance of this for Jesus' whole mission and therefore our mission as his body on earth today, as his hands and feet today. What I want you to understand is that Matthew describes the fulfillment of much of that. People are being healed. Lives are being transformed. The very thing that Isaiah saw that Jesus said has been fulfilled, Matthew says, is happening. So Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom. He was healing disease and sickness, and as a result of that, Huge crowds, it says. Huge crowds were coming from all over. Jesus is in the height of his popularity. It will continue to grow for a season until who Jesus is begins to emerge. The divinity, the authority, the conflict with the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and his call of what it would mean to follow him the crowds began to thin. Schemes and intrigue began to develop that ultimately led to his death. But at this point, it's a party. This is fun. People are being blessed. Crowds wanted to show up. You know, there weren't movie theaters. There was no CGI, that's for sure. This is the greatest show in Galilee. The next phrase is, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. Now, you might think that he came up on the mountainside in order that the whole crowd could hear him. That may or may not be true. This crowd is full of gawkers and miracle rubberneckers and and the curious. It's also full of those that are sincerely seeking and hungering for something. This crowd is full of all sorts of people. So it could actually be that Jesus was going up on the mountainside to thin out the crowd. And there was some symbolism to the mountainside. Mountains are associated in Scripture with significant encounters with and new revelation from God. Let's go back through the Old Testament and look at how often the top of a mountain is a place where God speaks or people encounter him, especially the giving of the Old Testament law at Mount Sinai. And that brings us to the second reason why possibly Matthew is very careful to say that this sermon was taught from a mountain. And that's the contrast between the giving of the old law through Moses on Mount Sinai and arguably what we are about to hear, which is the new law for the new kingdom of God given by Jesus. 
So in the same way in the Old Testament, people encountered God on the high place at the mountain. People received revelation from God. That's exactly what's happening here. Not all of them understand that yet, but the one who's about to teach them is the one who was God, without whom nothing was made that has been made, and who took on flesh and dwelt a while among us. They are going to the high mountain to sit at the feet of the creator of the universe, to encounter God and to receive new revelation. The third phrase are those simple three words. He sat down. Now you may think, Tom, you're not going to try to draw too much significance from that, are you? Yeah, I am. You see, Jewish people understood that sitting was the customary posture for rabbis when they taught. For you and me, it's just Jesus getting comfortable, (laughs) casual. He's going to preach like is popular nowadays in the megachurch. He's going to sit in a chair, little table, cup of coffee. But in fact, Jesus is positioning himself to be Rabbi Jesus. Our rabbi, our teacher, Jesus. He sat down. Fourth, his disciples came to him. Now here's the contrast between the great crowds in the end of chapter 4, and who is it that follows? The disciples. The word means a learner or a follower. In the Gospels, there are several different groupings of people that surround Jesus. They're the crowds. They're massive at times. Then there are the disciples, actually a broad term. For instance, uh, there were many of his disciples after Jesus fed the 5,000 and taught about their need to partake of him as their living bread. They said, these are hard words. And Scripture says many of his disciples left and were no longer following him. So that term disciple is a broad category of people, those who would say, I am intentionally following Christ. I'm not just showing up for the day. I'm going to be in the extended entourage and follow this rabbi. And they're still deciding. Then there are eventually the 70 who Jesus calls out from those disciples and sends them out to minister. And then those that we refer to as the disciples of Jesus are referred in the Gospels as the 12. We already see in chapter 4 that Jesus had begun to call out the 12. And then inside the 12, there were the three, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle. There's a lot in spiritual leadership you can learn from seeing how Jesus relates to each of these groups. What I want you to consider is that this message is for primarily the second group in of those concentric circles, those who were hungry to learn and had decided for now they were going to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear what he had to say and see what that meant for them. The disciples came to him, and then we have this phrase. In the NIV, it simply says, and he began to teach them. But in the Greek, it actually says, he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. That phrase actually is very formal. It invokes a ceremonial feel. So if we were first century Jewish people, 
we would see a, a beautiful fresco, a scene that helped us understand just how important the words are that Jesus is about to share. He opened his mouth and began to teach. This sermon is not just a collection of teachings. This is not just Jesus casually sitting and saying, okay, what comes to mind? Hmm. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or do not worry about what you will wear. And oh, here's another thing. It's not just a collection of Jesus' teaching put together to help us get a summary of what he taught. Because it says at the end, Chapter 7, it says, when he had finished teaching this sermon, the crowds were amazed at him because he spoke with such authority. So make no mistake, Matthew presents this as a presentation that Jesus made on that day early on in his ministry to those who were hungry to learn. And what that makes this is far more than a random set of ideas. What that makes this is the closest thing we have in Scripture to Jesus' manifesto. This is Jesus proclaiming what life was going to be like in this kingdom that had come over which He would reign. It is arguably, as John Stott says, a transformational counterculture. Let me read Stott's observations about this. The Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his followers to be and to do. To my mind, no two words sum up its intention better or indicate more clearly its challenge to the modern world than the expression Christian counterculture. That's what Jesus envisioned. And he laid it out at the very beginning. The first sermon he ever gave. This is the new community that I've come to bring. And this is what the kingdom of God will look like when that new community becomes the norm all over planet Earth. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. Make no mistake, this is it. And it was so radical in its day Let's say this together. This is the end of the sermon. Read it with me. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Authority. (laughs) Reigning as the one in charge of this. Jesus had the authority to speak about the old and to usher in the new. That's what we're about to read. And I can't wait to dig into it with you. And we're not going to rush because every verse presents something completely relevant to this day, this age, to this culture, as it has for 2,000 years been relevant to every single culture. A simple look at history will reveal that every new generation that comes on the scene aspires to do better than the last generation, has some picture of a utopian society. And then we envision how we can get there, how people need to act, what our educational system ought to be doing, how our governance ought to function. Each generation espouses and reaches for it, then the next generation looks back and 
is angry about how the previous generation failed. <laughs> and that happens time and time again. I heard somebody say that, and I think this is fair, most ideas of governance, whether it's socialism or democracy, whether it's even monarchy, could probably work if it wasn't for people. <laughs> There's a problem with every generation, whether they think they have the right idea or not. Whether it's the generation that, through a mixture of the influence of the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, and the Great Awakening, formed the great foundational principles of liberty that formed our democratic society. Believe me, I'm grateful for living in what I think is a great nation, but it's far from utopia. People are starving to death in our own borders. We are racially divided. Tension is at an all-time high. Our prisons are full. The gap between the wealthiest and the working class is wider than it has been since the era of the industrialists. Even the philosophy that gave birth to what may be the greatest nation on earth does not produce the great society. The shapers of the socialistic experiment in Great Britain, for instance, the Fabian culture, not the singer from the 50s, <laughs> the society that was so influential, George Bernard Shaw was part of that group, that took such hold in Great Britain that they were able to make a huge shift towards a socialistic society, believing through that they could bring about the utopian culture. And after that experiment, one of its most influential authors looked back at the failure of all of that. She made this observation, quote, we were counting on the essential goodness of people. And therein lies the problem. The problem isn't the ideas. There's lots of good ideas. Democracy's a pretty darn good one. The problem isn't our ideas. The problem is our hearts. And there is one true countercultural movement, the only one that could bring about the society that in our hearts we all envision, we all know we were meant to be a part of, and that's the culture that alone can change us from the inside out. Change hearts, change people, change society. That counterculture is called the kingdom of God. Amen. And we're about to learn what it's about. <laughs> so let's pray and commit ourselves to this journey. Father, thank you for your word. Oh. That song we sang, show us Christ through the teaching of your word. We have the opportunity in this to see Christ up close and personal because we're gonna hear his words. <laughs> words of life, words of hope, words of transformation. Father, we ask you, let us see Jesus as we study this together and then let us become Jesus. Let us become Jesus to the world around us. Amen.